Ward, thanks so much for joining me today. I believe you've been back and forth to Europe twice in the last uh, seven days. You've got quite the wealth of experience when it comes to European energy. I'd like to begin there. If you could intro us for the audience and just expand on that a little bit, please. Your experience with European, the European energy industry. Hi, everybody. Um, just experience with European energy uh, in the most recent days, but let's go back maybe 10, 12 years ago, uh, that if you really think about how Europe, Europe driven by um, Germany's most, uh, as the strongest economy, has been dealt a significant blow, obviously, with the Ukrainian war. But I think it goes back uh, a number of years. My, my time and experience in Europe uh, was late 2008, 2009, moving there and looking and trying to develop shale gas in Europe and being shut down on multiple levels. Uh, but un underlying all this was a, a need to go back and, and try and make, it, uh, make a difference. Europe today is uh, now locked in a battle for energy uh, with Asia uh, and has a difficult path to come out of it. And I would say that uh, the really only two significant solutions would be nuclear power and natural gas. And to that end, I'm working, Europe finally about eight months ago declared that both of those are green uh, forms of fuel. And with that, I uh, started to press a case. And fundamentally, uh, there's no easy solution for at least the next 24 to 36 months. Uh, uh, because of the historical connection to a 55% reliance on power from, from, uh, from Russia. Yeah, I'd love to expand on that last point, actually. Um, like, in, in 60 seconds or less, how did Europe allow Russia to have such a stranglehold over their energy sector? Well, I think, uh, again, I'm going to circle back to Germany in particular. Uh, the company I'm working with is, is really zeroed in on the natural gas sector. But when you really think about uh, Russia's connection to Germany, it goes back to Helmut Kohl, East Germany, West Germany, and the integration of the two economies was felt to be a safe place to be, that the two economies, if connected at an economic level, would be less of a threat to each other. And as a result, uh, Germany uh, began to drag further and further gas from Gazprom, which ended up being something like 55% of their entire power, came from Russia, uh, as opposed to Japan and Korea, who only rely on one uh, Qatar or Australia or any other form of LNG place for maybe 15% of their power. But they are 55% invested, and the net effect has been an epic failure now. Uh, their industry... Uh, from BASF and the chemical industry to uh, Mercedes, the factories, floors are now suffering a, a, an epic blow. And how's that manifesting right now on the ground? Because dial it back to three, four months ago, uh, we were seeing headlines every day forecasting very dire situations for the citizens, right? Um, how are they going to heat their homes? Would there be rolling blockouts, blackouts? Um, would there be hot water? All of this. Uh, for the meantime, and I know even the Chancellor of Germany was in Canada begging for a natural gas deal and our Prime Minister uh, sent him home saying, I can't make a sound business case for that. That's a whole other story. But, you know, has, have they managed to stave off the energy crisis this winter? Talk to me about the situation on the ground right now in countries like Germany. 
So uh, this year has been uh, a lucky save. Uh, if you looked at sort of the liquid natural gas cargo balance sheet around the world, um, China was offline COVID uh, and uh, sort of a interesting segue to that story was in November uh, when I was asked by Frank to look at this space, uh, you had uh, China all in complete lockdown for something like three years and uh, they started watching the Qatar football game. All the games, there was 200,000 people in a stadium, nobody was wearing a mask. And the Chinese woke up to this and said, oh God, you know, what have we been doing? And burned a couple of these COVID stations down and Xi Jinping let the brakes off. So what happened was uh, China has now started to wake up. We're now gonna have about uh, 18 months of picking up, stop, start, stop, start. But as they pick up pace, they're gonna pick up all the LNG cargoes that were available to Europe this, this winter. Right. So now we've got a problem where, where uh, you know, there was a number of LNG ships on the coast of Europe. There was lots of room to maneuver. Price of gas actually fell because of the excess cargoes. And today, uh, they're now looking at next year and starting to panic because those cargoes will not be available. Right, so the West sanctioned Russian energy. Yep. Russia found a new buyer for that energy. Is there any scenario where you could see Russian oil and gas playing a role in Europe again? Uh, I, I think uh, you can see it probably getting to a 15% number over okay. time. But Europe is making such a push for renewables uh, and, and uh, a need to lock into longer term contracts from the United States. Qatar, Australia, and their domestic needs, uh, domestic supplies, that I think you'll never see it below, more than maybe 15%. Now, I was, I was told, and I, I don't know the story, but that you had some personal experience with Russian interference in European yeah. energy. Is there, what can you share on that? Well, so it was, it was going back 12 years ago. I moved my family to Barcelona. We picked up about, uh, in a company called B&K Petroleum, uh, which was a spin-off from Bankers Petroleum, a little bit of some of that history, but being Cape Petroleum, we picked up about five and a half million acres of land in Europe, Germany, Spain, France, Poland. We were the largest subsurface landowner in all of Europe, chasing down these spectacular uh, assets. And it's, uh, much of that is what I'm trying to redo now while I'm back and forth to Europe. But fundamentally, uh, we had uh, projects ongoing. We were pushed back by political uh, push in Brussels. We had people showing up. We had, we were once in Spain doing a, a presentation, preparing for uh, a local uh, neighborhood involvement in the process of getting a license. We had three buses pull up, uh, full of people with placards and free lunch bags. Uh, nobody spoke a word of Spanish, but they were against anything to do with fracking and shale gas. This is right after a movie called Gasline came out. So we ended up battling uh, with the with the uh, the people that were in the buses, and the local mayor actually said to us, "We want these jobs. We want to have the fracking. We want to get the industry going here, but we can't put up with all the pushback by the, um, the the notable press from the green movement that was being, in our opinion, funded by Gazprom at that time. Nord Stream One pipeline was just up and running, and uh, and, and as we see now, Nord Stream Two was just trying to go online. But at that time, there was an epic push." by Gazprom in the news saying that shale gas is bad gas and yet all the gas that they were producing was also shale gas. So we got a pushback from, from local uh, uh, presence by, that was brought in and imported and we also had 
terrible pushback from uh, Brussels. And they've completely turned that on their head. They've said, no, natural gas now is good. Even the uh, German finance minister the other day came out and said fracking may be allowed back in Germany, which seems a bit odd, but I, 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 I'm now chasing more traditional gas in, in Europe, and I think uh, there's a, an epic opportunity over the next couple of years to do so. Yeah, and I want to talk about that. And I also want to talk about what incentivized you to hunt this down right now. Yeah. Um, and if we could, before we get there, if you could expand a little bit on your professional history uh, building and selling companies in the energy sector. Everybody in this audience is likely familiar with the banker's petroleum story, but I'd love you to tell it. And give us some context on your background building and selling com companies in this industry. Uh, so more by luck than great design. Uh, I was in Europe in the early 90s when the, when the wall fell and I was asked by a friend to help raise money in a project in Kazakhstan. Uh, we picked up a project uh, called Karazembas Moon. I was on the shores of the Caspian Sea. It was about 500 barrels a day production. Uh, over the course of about 12 years, we took it to 58,000 barrels a day production. We sold it to the Chinese, CIDIC, for about 1.6 billion US dollars. Um, through that process, uh, I was lucky enough to, to uh, sit down with a couple of guys here in town and, and package up another very large heavy oil asset in Europe called Patas Marinza Field in Albania. We put that into a company called Bankers Petroleum, uh, where we were uh, resetting a, a, a very old field with a lot of logistical issues. Uh, we took that field from, again, about 500 barrels a day to, I think, 26,000 barrels a day. Mm. And it was sold in, again in 2016 uh, to a Chinese company, quite frankly. Um, through that process, again, I was then pushing the, a spin-out company called b Petroleum, which we took from uh, it's another stock that's sort of 10 cents to, to sort of six dollars on the chase for the for the shale gas in Europe. Um, that was a, a was an epic win for for a number of the of our original investors and and uh, late investors. Uh, the push beyond that was me trying to get into the gas business, seeing that natural gas was the future. Uh, I became deputy chairman of the board of a company called Introil. Uh, again, uh, we took that stock and sold it for about 50 dollars a share. Uh, to ExxonMobil uh, for, I think it was about $2.6 billion US. Um, I was asked by a dear friend uh, here again last year to, to have a look at and examine the gas position in Europe, uh, and I've got some unfinished business there. I want to go back and I want, set I want the record it. straight, get it, get it done right this time. All right. uh, so that was, that's been my effort. We got MCF Energy, which we're now pressing very hard to develop natural gas fields in Austria, Germany, and other parts of Europe. Uh, which I expect will be a very, very um, spectacular run between now and the next sort of 36 months. Well, I, I want you to outline exactly what caught your attention because given your professional history, uh, Ford, you could have honestly chosen to do anything with your time, um, including nothing if you wanted to, uh, but you chose to jump back into the game and get building again. And so if you could outline what caught your attention, why you felt like the timing was right, what was occurring on the ground that told you the time is now, I want to get back in this. Well, I've never, never taken my eye, eye off the ball. I've uh, looked at this space for an awfully long time and uh, in Europe in particular. And I would say to you that Honestly, the, the European energy business is at a crossroads of transitional energy uh, and the fact that both nuclear and natural gas are now considered green. Many of the companies, Vintischal, the largest uh, German company out there, has shut down their entire exploration department. A room as big as this with this many people uh, in, their, in their engineering and, and uh, 
their exploration team was reduced to three people. I looked at, I was chatting with one of the fellows who runs the program out there, and, and, and this was sort of, this is what really woke me up to this, was he said, let me just give you an idea of what it looks like exploration in Germany, the largest exploration company and operating company in, in uh, Germany. And he turned his, uh, his laptop around with a video camera and showed the floor of wires sticking out of the floor, old marks where desks and tables and chairs have been, in this enormous space. He was one of three people in a room of maybe 10,000 square feet. So that's what's left. You know, 110 years of exploration material was reduced to some kind of a USB drive that was sitting somewhere uh, in his office. That was it. So my view was that the exploration and the development of assets in Europe had come to a grinding halt because of the reliance on Russian gas. There's this fantastic opportunity to walk right into that space and pick off assets which have been developed, they've been looked at, they've been explored, the seismic is over top of them. There's wells that are produced in eastern Germany. There's assets in Austria, Romania, Bulgaria, Turkey. They're available. And if you just concentrate on natural gas, there's going to be a fantastic window for the next three to five years, in my view. Now, you mentioned 55% reliance on Russian gas, obviously, but yeah. how much of the renewable energy narrative in the way, and specifically the way it's been sold to the public, contributed to a lack of investment in other viable energy sources? And look, I don't mean to come out as negative against renewable energy at all, but the way this is being sold to the public, I would say, is largely a fallacy. Um, and, you know, Germany and France invested quite heavily in solar and wind, and now they're refiring coal plants and burning wood in the homes. So talk to me a little bit about that narrative, and if you agree, how that's gone wrong. And if you don't agree, I'd love to hear that as well. I think, I think the juxtaposition, I mean, just think about this for a minute. There's a piece on uh, a BBC here about a week ago uh, showing a 17th century village in Germany being moved three kilometers west. They literally took every stone out of an old 17th century church. They took the village, the fire hydrants, the town hall, and moved the whole village three kilometers so that they could bring their lignite mining, coal mining machinery through the village. All right? They're still mining coal at an epic pace. Lignite coal, which is a, a terrible the, pollutant. The dirtiest kind of coal. The dirtiest burn, kind of correct. coal out there. Yeah. Right. So on the one hand, they're doing that. Uh, and even the, green, the, the head of the Green Party was suggesting it's a good idea to do this. That gives you an idea of the sort of turn, turning of mind. At the same time, they're now, they're now saying, you know, they're, they're providing huge grants for hydrogen power uh, and whatever they can do to subsidize the space. I actually expect there's a pretty good chance that going into next winter, there'll be subsidies, to, not, not super taxes on top of, of uh, natural gas and, and uh, this kind of production, but actually subsidies and support to develop their own internal uh, hydrocarbon industry to the point where companies don't really care if there's reserves beyond three or four years. So whatever we can find, they're going to want to develop as fast as possible, those reservoirs drained as quickly as possible, so that that benefit and, those, and that capital win can be uh, pursued for other transitional energy forms. Okay. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. Now, I want to get back to MCF Energy. Yeah. This is what you're building right now. Could you tell us a little bit about the assets you currently have in Germany and Austria? So I'd say first is the team. I've got some fantastic people uh, that I've worked with in the past, uh, very much at the, at the center of this uh, company. Uh, Jay Park is executive chairman, who's 
uh, got a history with me going back to the early 90s, both in Kazakhstan and Albania, etc. Uh, he's uh, just been a tremendous force. He has a home between Turkey and London and doing a lot of the work there. Uh, Jim Hill, who helped us build up the bankers' uh, assets originally and the B&K assets, uh, he's there with us. We have a fantastic board. General Wesley Clark is on our board. Uh, the former Supreme Commander of NATO is known to some of you here. Uh, just some, some really great people to start with. And then the assets. You would, I would say to you that you know, the energy business today, if you look at Canadian oil and gas companies, they're drilling what I call tier one locations, tier two. They're being very disciplined with their cash flow. Uh, they're providing share buybacks and stock dividends and not stepping out of their tier one locations. Uh, the exploration assets are for zero. And in Europe, where there's a bunch of them defined, we're basically picking these things off for very cheap uh, and the best of the best assets. So our first asset is a, uh, it's a 600, almost, a, I think it's a TCF at a P10, but it's roughly 600 BCF target we're going to be drilling in Austria. Uh, that's two kilometers from a pipeline, lots of infrastructure. Uh, same thing in Germany. We've got some fabulous, fabulous assets in Germany we've just picked off and we've, I think, on the record, all three, we have, I think, about six other applications ongoing uh, in Germany. Uh, we are looking a little bit of the offshore stuff where there's developed assets right now, but mostly onshore Europe all the way down through, as I said, uh, through Hungary, uh, after uh, Austria and Germany, through Hungary, uh, Bulgaria, Romania, all the way down to Turkey, and even looking at some of the assets in North Africa. So anything that can provide natural gas through pipeline into Europe, we're looking at. And we have a, an epic team that's really working on that right now for us. Yeah, I'm, okay, so I'm glad you started there. Uh, it's always bullish when you see a winning team stick together and go back into the market with something new. You mentioned General Wesley Clark, former Supreme Commander of NATO. I have to ask, do you know his expectation of the war in Europe? Does he expect it to escalate or does he expect things to calm down? Or do you know what, I know you're very close with him. Um. I think I got to know uh, Wesley through with Frank Justra and um, uh, George Soros. Is actually an interesting story about that. But the, at the core of it is is a is a uh, firm belief from Wes that Europe is continually exposed to Russia, that it is not just a military might; it's an economic powerhouse uh, that has uh, has long tentacles into Europe. Um, I. You know, I, he, he, I think he was the one who, who reminded me very early on, 10 years ago, that I think Gerhard Schroeder, the former uh, Chancellor of Germany, is now on the board of Gazprom, to give you an example. Right. Uh, there's deep ties between Russia and Europe, and in particular Germany, that really exposes them at every level. Uh, we talk to him on a regular basis about what the, what the sort of next three months, six months, 18 months really looks like. And uh, he's a... Uh, although a, a relatively balanced military, former military general, he is, uh, has a very strong opinion on the disconnect need for Europe and was with me 10 years ago and is uh, a huge supporter of MCF and what we can do to, to uh, turn the tide in terms of energy in Europe. Okay, so talk to me about the grand vision for MCF. When, you know, when you tell this story for the first time, you know, what's, what's the big vision for it? Well, we want to, we, look, this is, this is a, a, about a period of transitional energy for Europe still, but it's now a super accelerated uh, a need. And the fact that Europe has convert, converted both gas and nuclear to, to green power, uh, I think building up an asset base of natural gas goes beyond 2030. 
you need natural gas for fertilizer. You need natural gas for a lot of things. It's hard to use electricity for a lot of the things you need in the, in the chemical industry. So as it stands now, uh, our focus is, is uh, natural gas predominantly. We'll run across liquids at some point which we can spin out. But wherever we can capture natural gas and long-term access into Europe, we're going to be acquiring them. And I think, you know, on a long-term basis, this is something that can absolutely be sold to, to a major if we get to enough critical mass. And that's certainly where we're looking. We want to get to enough critical mass that we can either uh, sell the entire asset or, or continue on and start to uh, dividend out money. I don't foresee natural gas being off the table of energy in Europe right through to 2050. I, I absolutely see natural gas staying in, as a positional uh, form of energy. Okay, now bring it in near term for me. Um, I mean, my audience is largely retail investors, and the most important question they want to ask is what's going to happen next? So, talk to me about 12, 18 months, uh, catalysts, news flow. Uh, what can people interested in what you're building now with MCF Energy expect? Yeah. So I would say to you that, that as I said, MCF has got a, a, a very broad uh, view and portfolio look at assets which have been uh, completely left alone. They're, they have been, they've been marooned for about five years. And only in the last seven months uh, has Europe converted their view in terms of natural gas. So we are picking up all sorts of assets uh, all across Europe. We expect to have you know, even a sort of one in three uh, success, uh, one in two, one in three, one in four, worst case. And we would hope to build up assets that we can then backfill with existing production. There's existing production portfolio assets where, well, I'll give me away my, my sort of my, my tactical plan, but what I would say to you is that the big private equity companies out there who bought assets in 2015 when oil price collapsed last time, they've got a seven-year shelf life on these assets. They need to sell them, move them on to, to, uh, to other industry. And they've not been able to. Five years was 2020. We hit COVID for two years. And now these private equity companies must sell these assets. So I intend to pick off a number of the PE firm's assets, right. pick off the exploration assets, and build enough critical mass that we become a real force in Europe. I love it. Look, yeah. Ford, it's been an honor having you on my stage. Thanks so much for making the time and making the trip back to Canada to do this. Um, goes without saying, I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, please give them a warm round of applause. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.